Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Tuesday, May 16th. I'm Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RCP. I'm Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief. Morning, Tom. Good morning, Carl. How are you? Good. How was your Mother's Day? It was lovely. Thank you very much. How was yours? You know, Tom, uh, it's a bittersweet day, like millions and millions of Americans. I, I, I lost my mother. So, but what you can do on that day is remember something about her that you appreciate and loved and cherished, and make sure that you line up your kids so that they're paying homage to the mother you know, of your children. And between you and I, we have eight children. And so if you did for Carrie what you needed to do, and I did the same thing. So it was a good day. Good. We also had some politics happening over the weekend, particularly in Iowa. Ron DeSantis was there on Saturday and Donald Trump. If you remember, we probably talked about it on the show when Ron DeSantis announced that he was going to Iowa, Trump announced an event on the same day in the Hawkeye State. And turns out he had to cancel his event because there was a tornado watch, I guess, in the area where he was he was scheduled to be in Des Moines. Wait, there was there was wind nearby where he might have been, so he canceled. Or is, that, <laughs> is that really what happened, what? Or, did, or did he just? Or did, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but there was a there were a lot of DeSantis supporters that were tweeting out things like there was an empty parking lot and there were blue skies, and it was Trump wasn't canceling because of a tornado watch; he was canceling because no one showed up. We happen to have someone on the ground in Iowa who disputes all of those things. Um, and and actually ended up going to the DeSantis event. But certainly, Carl, Ron DeSantis looks very, very much like he's running, and he is going to try. And I mean, if he's going to have any chance of of beating Donald Trump in a primary situation, he's going to have to perform well. I don't think he has to win Iowa, but he, you know, he, he's going to have to do well in Iowa. He can't wait till Florida. Well, Look, Joe Biden, you know, three years ago, finished way up the track in Iowa and New Hampshire, then went down to South Carolina, famously, you know, turned things around. But I, yeah, I, I don't know that Ron DeSantis has that much time. Uh, last, you know, when Donald Trump ran in 2016, Tom, you'll remember this well, all the smart people, all the wise guys, oh, this just can't happen. He's, he's got no experience. He says outrageous things. He, he's not going to get there. But the polls showed, showed him competitive in Iowa. They showed him leading in New Hampshire. They showed him leading two to one in South Carolina. And I, I remember telling people at the time, said, okay, what by what dynamic of nature does he finish first or second in Iowa, win New Hampshire, and he's going to do less well in South Carolina than the polls show him doing? And it, it, it turns out he, you know, he finished second in Iowa, won New Hampshire and South Carolina easily and cruised to the nomination. So I don't know, I don't know that DeSantis has to win. Iowa. I don't know that he has to win New Hampshire, but he doesn't. You're right. By the time he gets to Florida, he's got to win somewhere outside his state. He's got to somehow show that Donald Trump is not inevitable or invincible. And he's got to do it. He's got to do it early. We had a poll come out just a couple of days ago showing him losing Florida to Donald Trump by a few percentage well, points. Well, that's, so that's, that's, that's what happened to Marco Rubio, Tom. He, you know, he yep. got count on Florida, couldn't win there. It was over for him. Do you think... Uh, Carl, that all of this sort of back and forth between Trump and DeSantis, I mean, Trump continues to just pound on DeSantis. Is it hurting the Republican Party? I mean, I see real, again, Twitter's not real life, so it's not fair to judge, uh, you know, but but it is representative of, of a political class of the people who are really sort of involved in politics. And you go online, it doesn't take, you scratch the surface and they're you know, you see all the DeSantis folks who hate Trump and all the Trump folks hate DeSantis. 
and they're going back and forth on it on, on Twitter about everything from abortion, which is the latest issue that, that's arising, to to you know DeSantis's personality or lack thereof, to you know Disney is Warren Disney, all of that. If this continues another seven eight months, um, which it may very well do. Um, that's not good for the Republican Party trying to unify to beat Joe Biden. They're going to need every vote they can get across the board in in next December or next November. That's right. There's no question in my mind that it's hurting the Republican Party. It, you, you look back in these previous campaigns, there was no love lost. I mean, going all the way back to George George Bush and Ronald Reagan, their staffs didn't like each other. But Reagan conducted himself in such a manner that when he defeated Bush, he not only put Bush on the ticket with him, he hired Bush's, you know, consigliere to be his White House chief of staff. That's uh, James Baker III. So, you know, those were the old days. But even even when John McCain ran in these primaries, you know, th- th- this was a very spirited competition. But you just didn't hear the kind of nasty cheap shots from the candidates. Sometimes you'd hear it from their staffs that the staffs don't like each other. That's inevitable and maybe even a little bit healthy. But w- the way Donald Trump disparages uh, I was thinking about this, like the way he disparages DeSantis in such personal terms. There are millions and millions of Republicans who don't really know anything about Ron DeSantis, who voted for Donald Trump twice. Now they're, Trump is defining Ron DeSantis for them. If Trump ended up losing the nomination to DeSantis, these people would would dislike DeSantis as much as they dislike Biden. It's it's a kamikaze attack, if you ask me. It's It's counterproductive. It's why Gaylord Parkinson, who ran the California Republican Party, when I was a kid, formulated the famous 11th commandment that uh, <laughs> thou shall not speak ill of thy fellow Republicans. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, the, the 12th commandment under Trump is I speak ill of everyone, especially my fellow Republicans. <laughs> All right, Carl, shifting to the Democrats real quick. There, uh, Joe Biden was in the news over the weekend. He gave a commencement address at Howard University which is a historically black college, very prominent one. Um, It is the alma mater of the vice president of the United States, uh, where he said white supremacy is the leading terrorist threat to America. Jerry Baker has a piece in the Wall Street Journal, which we ran on the site yesterday afternoon. I'll just read the first. It says, over a long career, Biden has delivered more than a few speeches that will take their place in the annals of cheap demagoguery. But he may have surpassed himself last weekend with his commencement address at Howard University in Washington. And he goes through the the litany of, you know, how Biden painted this to this class. You know, commencement addresses are supposed to be uplifting and sending these bright young college graduates on their way into the world and full of hope and all of those kinds of things. And Joe Biden basically painted this picture of, you know, Alabama in 1960, that the country is just a, has achieved no racial progress whatsoever. And he's, you know, sending, sending these folks off in, out into the world thinking that America is a just a systemically, disgustingly racist place, which they're going to, you know, struggle, etc. Very powerful column by Jerry Baker, I thought. And, you know, his speech bothered me. It reminded me very much of, and I tweeted about this over the weekend, when he said 12 years ago to an all-black audience that Mitt Romney wanted to put y'all back in chains, which was a, just a ridiculously offensive hyperbolic metaphor that's designed to absolutely inflame racial tensions in this country. And I feel like the speech was, although in a more august setting, of a similar vein. Your thoughts? I agree with you and, and Jerry Baker. I, the 
first of all, the president's wrong on the merits. I mean, this is historic numbers of, of black college graduates. Um, every year in our country, you have, you know, this guy, the only reason he's in the White House, because whenever he ran for president by himself, he was little more than a joke. Barack Obama, the first African-American president that this country had, won a majority of the votes, won more higher percentage of the white vote than most Democratic candidates do. And and he's only there because this country elected an African-American president. I mean, the, the whole thing, it's, it's, it's sort of surreal. So he, he's just factually completely upside down. And these, these, look, I don't know what's going on at Harvard, at, at Howard, but, you know, all these colleges, these kids get a steady dose of that that crap from their professors. You know, they, they don't need it from a president of the United States who's supposed to speak to our better angels. But but that's my second point. It's just not how a president should talk. They're, they're, you, you want the president to tell people what's right with the country and what they ought to do. You don't want him to be Pollyannish. You don't want him to ignore things that are happening. But this is a time to celebrate, to me, African-American achievement, that the president had an opportunity the speaker, the minority leader in Congress, the uh, Democratic leader is African-American. The vice president is both African-American and Asian-American. The, uh, the president before Trump was African-American, as I said. So this is a time he could have given a completely different speech with the opposite message. And you, you start to wonder, is why, what, what is Joe Biden so angry about? He, he, he came across in that speech as angry. And, and you're right. He's like uh, sort of the reverse George Wallace is this this kind of this this vitriol it, it doesn't it it was maybe it fit the setting but i i don't i don't think that's how americans ex- historically have expected presidents to talk and i i guess he's following donald trump and donald trump you know talks this way all the time which again reminds me of the, to me the great mystery the great enigma of my entire career tom the the thing that i've noticed in the last 5 years that i have no answer for and I've covered politics since the 80s, why do the people who who detest Donald Trump the most act the most like him? That's what I don't understand. And I was thinking of that as well when I heard Biden's speech. Do you think he believes it? You know, Joe Biden gave this speech in, well, I think it was January, February of 2022, the one in Philadelphia, maybe it was March, in Philadelphia with the crazy oh, you the know, Nure- red lighting. The, the and Nuremberg all the- speech? <laughs> the Nuremberg speech, exactly. It was had all of this really bizarre, you know, imagery where he, again, kind of angrily lamented and denounced this, the, the MAGA movement and all of the sort of white supremacy, white nationalists, all this stuff, right, as this giant threat to America. And that was a theme that he ran on in 2022. It's a theme that, you know, I guess the Democrats think served them pretty well. In that election, it seems to be part and parcel of his 2020, 2024 campaign. So I guess politically, I understand it if I'm if I'm being cynical. But I, you know, do you think that Joe Biden and the Democrats, and do you think that the audience who was listening to him at Howard, do they actually believe it? Is that their view of this country? It's hard to know what a president really thinks. I mean, there's a certain cynicism in all politicians, but I think the Democrats have convinced themselves of of the truth of this narrative. When I saw, uh, do you remember that when when uh, Trump was president, he hadn't been president that long. There's this rally, I forget what they called it in Charlottesville. You know, unite the morons, what, what these Ku Kluxers and sorted crazies and imbeciles and 
Some of them quite violent. One of them killed a woman with his car. So the call goes out to the whole, all of North America. Come, show show your power. You know, four or 500 people show up. Right. To me, the way to deal with white supremacists, they're still around, but there's so few of them, is to laugh at them. Uh, you remember in the movie, The Blues Brothers? Now, this came out, what, a generation ago. There's there's a there's a Nazi march in Skokie, and they make the Nazis all end up jumping off the bridge, and they're and they're they come across as just clowns, and to me that's really how they should be treated. But what's happened in the last since Donald Trump arrived on the scene is that some of these people don't want to be treated as clowns. They're the proud boys. They want they demand respect, and and the left has given it to them, uh, albeit for partisan advantage. But I just don't think there are that many white supremacists. I don't think that's what's going on. I I see a different world. Now, is there systemic racism in the country? It's an interesting question. And I wish we could talk about it outside partisan politics because Reason Magazine has some pieces about this from time to time. These freeways that bisected neighborhoods, these real estate covenants that you know prevented generations of black middle class families from achieving any kind of generational wealth. These are real problems and, and with with lasting impacts and their vestiges are still here. But that requires a sober discussion about what we do about it and, and how much it, it is. Not just these this name calling and this this vitriol. I, I guess Jerry's word demagoguery is the right word that come and, and just you'd really rather not have it come from a president. So we've had two consecutive presidents who it's their default position just to, you know, rant and rave and exaggerate. And it just doesn't seem helpful. We got to, we got to wrap it up here. But I, I mean, I do think Biden believes has convinced himself of his rationale for running the first time that he, he had to save the country from Donald Trump and that Donald Trump was a unique threat to this country. I do think Biden convinced himself that that was true and that he accomplished that. But I find it hard to believe that Biden sees the world as, as dystopian in such a dystopian way that you know, half the country are a threat to the other half and, and you know, unrepentant racists and all these things. Well, he never did before. And, and I guess that's the dialectic. So Trump's a threat. Most of his voters should know he's a threat. Most of them should know he's a racist. This is the dialectic. So if they vote for him, they're closet racist. You heard this Hillary Clinton talk this way. You, you know, some of our great newspapers in this country routinely use that formulation. So I can see how they've convinced themselves that when, when Donald Trump says, you know, 65 million people voted for me, they, some of these Democrats think, well, that means, that means we have 65 million racists in this country. It's a big number. So I, I, I don't think all of them are insincere, Tom. I just think they're misguided. Well, we will leave it there for this morning. I'm Tom Bevin, co-founder president of Real Clear Politics. And I'm Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief. And this has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. 